Hi, HN community. If you're a small business owner, and chances are that if you're listening to our podcast, we're talking to you, we highly recommend you take advantage of this offer. Take this as your sign. Comcast Rise is an initiative designed to help strengthen AAPI small business owners that have been hit the hardest by the economic impact of the pandemic. Comcast Rise aims to create sustainable impact and give meaningful support to the small businesses with free services, including marketing strategy consultations, creation of a 30-second commercial, digital media advertising opportunities, and technology upgrades such as free iPads, desktops, and internet service for a year. Head to ComcastRise.com to apply today. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode on the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, with us today. Her name is Rebecca Liao. She is the founder, co-founder and CEO of Saga, a protocol for launching the next 1,000 chains in the, in the metaverse. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's an honor to be on. Everything you've done with Asian Hustle Network is just so impressive and important to the community. And I just, I'm thrilled to be here. We're thrilled to have you here today. And we want to dive into your story. Please tell us who you are. What was your upbringing like? And how did you become the person you are today? Oh, my goodness. Right, so I'll try to keep this short so we're not boring your audience here. You don't um, want it short. You want the full details. You want the full details. Okay. So I, you know, I don't often do this for a podcast. I have to say, you know, I, I do these things usually on behalf of Saga or in my previous positions on behalf of that company or organization. I don't often talk about myself. So let's let's try to start maybe from, from the very beginning. So I'm a California Bay Area girl. I was born in San Francisco. And my parents are originally from mainland China. So they immigrated to this country, like many of our parents, in search of opportunity and a better life. And after a few years, I think once I, I hit age five, they were like, okay, she's ready to start school. And so we'd like to move to the suburbs and just give her a better environment. And so, yeah, from, from the age of five on, I pretty much lived in the California Bay Area, went to college at, at Stanford, and then on to law school on the East Coast at Harvard. That was my very first experience leaving California and living somewhere else full time. And uh, it was it was interesting because, you know, living in the California Bay Area, even at that time, you know, because of this podcast, I, I can tell a little bit more about this. You know, it was already quite diverse. So a lot of people from various backgrounds, whether they're Asian American, Hispanic American, African American. So it was a pretty diverse place. And then I, I went to the East Coast where it was also, I mean, I... You know, so Harvard is in Cambridge, which is very close to Boston. So close to an urban area as well. But I would say they, they were maybe still of a different culture. And it was a bit of a shock for me, even in a university environment. It was it was a bit of a shock. And after a few years, I, I resolved, okay, I'm you know going to finish my degree. And then I love tech. I've always loved tech. And I wanted to work in the tech industry. And I love California. I, I still consider it home. And so I came back. I came back and started a legal career. So I, I was a corporate lawyer for about seven years doing the usual mergers and acquisitions, securities, laws, financings, corporate governance, and the like. And I, I always knew I was a little bit different because even in law school, so how law school usually goes is your first year, you're taking all your core classes, like property law contracts, just the basic foundations of law. And by your second year, at least this was the case when I was in law school, you kind of know what you're going to do post-law school. That's when the law firms show up for recruiting, et cetera. And so you, you will work a lot in your second year, but you're already starting to think about the finish line. And so by your third year, unless something you know really unfortunate happened, you know what your job is going to be post-graduation. So your third year, you have a freedom to explore a little more. And I remember my third year of law school, I took a lot of law classes, but I also thought, you know, I, I'm at this amazing university with these amazing resources. So I, I'm going to take advantage of that. And so I took a lot of classes in the English department. I took a lot of classes in the music department, history, political science. And that's when the, the seed first got planted 
I love doing deal work and I love the practice of law, but there will always be something else that's it's sort of pulling me. So fast forward, I've been practicing law for maybe two years at this point. And already I'm thinking, this is not my forever future. I was already starting to feel the pull of, I didn't quite know what, but something a little more creative, not so creative as to, you know, quit everything and become a writer, for instance, although I was writing a lot and publishing a lot at that time, not so creative as to become, you know, full-fledged musician or performer, but something where I I had the chance to, to, to do more with what I had. And it, it was, sort of by happenstance in the end that I transitioned away. So I I literally was reading an article in TechCrunch about this company that just closed a seed round and they were aiming to, I think, like redo globalization or they were trying to like revolutionize globalization. I mean, some sort of word salad like that, but for me, it was catnip. So I, I looked up the founders of this company. I didn't know them. I didn't know anybody who was on this, this company's website, but the the founder, his name is Joel Hyatt. Fortunately, he does make his, I don't know if this is still the case, but he, at the time he made his personal email available on his LinkedIn. And so I just reached out and I said, Hey, you know, our backgrounds are quite similar. I'm passionate about what you're doing. Can we please talk? And about a week later I had a job. So that company was Globality and it Globality is AI-based procurement for international services. So it's an AI company. I was head of business development there and founded and headed up their Asia operations we got backed by SoftBank, so I reached unicorn status, and I think the the company is still doing remarkably well. This is a while ago now. After Globality, I I became really really interested in crypto and Web three, and at first I was primarily interested in what this meant for revolutionizing financial services. And so I was co-founder and CEO at a company called Skew Chain, uh, which focused on providing short term liquidity to small medium sized businesses. And I was there for about four years, learned a ton. It was my first time being a founder and it just, it is such an education. And I I learned, even though I'm from the California Bay area and we've been tech crazy all my life, I learned for the first time why it is startups are special. Why is it that a startup founding team or a startup that eventually grows to a large company, you know, why, what separates it from people who found other kinds of businesses. People start businesses every day. There are entrepreneurs all among us in America. But why is it that startups are, are special? We can get a little more into that later, but but it was it was quite an education. And after after four years, I thought, okay, you know, we got the platform to about five billion in annual volume. And I thought, you know, this is a good time to start looking around and kind of getting the itch to create something else. This was around spring of 2021. Now, what I haven't mentioned so far is in addition to legal career, writing, startups, I've always been interested and involved in politics, always. And I was part of the Clinton campaign in 2016. It was a heartbreaker. I was part of the Biden campaign in 2020, both times advising on foreign policy and tech policy. And in 2020, we got the result we wanted. So I thought I would be headed to DC. So I I had a long career in private sector. I thought I would be a public servant for the rest of my life. I, I don't know if you've heard, but government can be slow. <laughs> and I, I spent a good chunk of 2021 going through the process of interviewing, getting vetted. And by fall of that year, I thought, you know, I, I work sort of at this pace. And this pace has been drilled into me from the time I was a lawyer all the way through my startup career. And I... I'm also, in the end, a pretty creative person, or at least I have the urge to create. And so being in a startup environment was really a great fit for that. So I ended up calling up one of my co-founders from SkewChain who had moved on to build something else. And I said, you know, I I think I might stay in crypto and Web3. And he was like, well, there is this team within this ecosystem in Web3 called Cosmos. They are building something new. They have an idea, but they don't quite know how to get to lift off. So I talked to them end of last year and really hit it off. I I could see what they were trying to do and how I could help. And well, we'll tell the story of Saga in a little bit, but here we are. (laughs) I mean, that is an amazing story, right? And I can, I mean, I'm really happy that you're sharing this on our podcast. I can tell that you're not, you haven't really talked about yourself on a podcast before. So I love to create this environment for you. 
Yeah, no, thank you, Brian. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I don't often, you know, not, not just in a podcast, I don't often talk about myself. So mm-hmm. even when I'm on stage, you know, talking about Web3 or the metaverse, or I don't know, it, let's move to, to another area. If I'm talking about foreign policy or whatnot, whenever anyone says, you know, tell me about yourself, it's like, well, you know, I started my career as a corporate lawyer. That's where it begins, right? I don't talk about my childhood. I definitely don't talk about my parents. Yeah, but I, I think for this podcast in particular and for the mission at Asian Hustle Fund, it's just it's important for people to to see us all as as people. You know, hopefully they can identify with the hero stories. Maybe there's something in there that can be helpful. But yeah, thank you for giving us this environment in which to share. Yeah. I mean, that is our goal, right? Our goal is to listen to your story and have that that the voice that says, I could do it too. Yes, right? absolutely. Absolutely. You could do it too. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I I can't, I can't overemphasize that because I, I truly did have a very, I guess you could call it run of the mill upbringing. I mean, I, I grew up in suburban California Bay area, which part of the Bay did you grow up in? So I, I grew up in Fremont. I grew up in Fremont, East Bay. Bay. East Bay. I I studied all the time. So that part is true. That that part of the expectation is true. I studied all the time. I did all these extracurricular activities. You know, my my life was about moving to the next step. Like what is the next step? And when I was growing up, the next step was a great college. And once I got to college, the next step was grad school. And then after grad school was career. And that's when I I finally had the freedom to stop thinking in terms of steps. But anyways, that's yeah, no, that that's not it's not super super important. I think the, the larger point I was trying to make was I did have from the outside a, a really really run of the mill upbringing. So how do you go from that to doing startups and really making sure that you have a comprehensiveness and force of vision to be able to take a company from nothing to lift off? And I will say that I don't, I don't know if this is just me or because living in a, a pretty vanilla suburban environment, you're just forced to do this. But I, I've always been a dreamer. I've always dreamt a lot. Even from the time I was a little girl, I, I've just been, you know, dreaming and dreaming about various different things. But it, it, that was always a part of who I am. And no matter how pragmatic I am, no matter how much I, I think about what's realistic, what's doable, I've always remained a dreamer and I would encourage anyone out there to never lose that part of you because I I think it is a very natural part of people when they're growing up that, you know, kids, they play, they, they indulge in imagination. Uh, As you grow up, you're, you're encouraged to lose that. But I, I I would let people know that it, it is a very important part of you and don't ever lose it. Yeah, I agree. I think having dreams and holding on to that, no matter how crazy and unrealistic it sounds, it's like the yeah. best part of of just being human, right? Yeah, I up. agree. Yeah, and you know the part about you know going through stages, right? Going to yeah. a good school and having a good career. I feel like that's such an Asian way of becoming an entrepreneur, which is like a common theme. <laughs> on this podcast right it's like i got really good grades or i went to college or yeah. i did this and that then i had my career finally to satisfy my parents expectations and for i can yeah. live my own life afterwards and it's crazy hearing that from you i'm also very much in the same track right I got a master's yeah. in engineering worked my career for about 10 years and then yeah. started yeah, yeah. started asian hustle network right there you go it's That's almost awesome. like a prerequisite for most asian Asian entrepreneurs out there. And I'm glad you're sharing this story too, because like, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people out there that feel the same way you you do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I feel like nowadays it's like, we're so, I love what I love most about this generation, about this time period to be alive is that a lot yeah. of people are seeing that there's more to life than just being in a yeah. corporate environment. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, so I'll, I'll, I guess, talk about two different aspects of this. So first one is is probably the, the weightier one for all of us is parental expectations. And I think for many of us who come from an Asian background, that never really goes away. doesn't matter how old you are. It, it never quite goes away. But having said that, this is my personal experience is if you have a dream and you have conviction behind it, so not thinking about what anyone has to say about it, but you yourself believe in it and you're incredibly passionate about it. Even when things go wrong, you want to keep working on it. Believe you and me, if you work at it and it actually kind of works out, 
attitudes will change very quickly, you know? So I'm sure you've had people on this podcast who are restaurateurs, for instance, and I think many Asian parents are like, you know, I'm starting to, to get into stereotypes here. So I want to be careful, but many will say, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer and restaurateur is not in those categories. However, you know, your restaurant does remarkably well, or, or you yourself, like just in all your endeavors, you're doing remarkably well. All of a sudden your parents' attitudes are going to change. So I, I think for people um, for whom that's sort of weighing on their minds, just know that the attitude does change once they see, oh, okay, you know, we're able to, to expand possibility here. and Part of the reason why immigrants come to a place like America is for expanded opportunity, a better life, but sometimes they don't know quite what that means. You know, they have a frame of reference of what that would mean from when they came and throughout their careers and their work lives, they have some sort of understanding of what that means. But like you said, successive generations have different ideas about that. There are different ways to earn your keep, make money, make a life. And sometimes it's it's scary, but it's incumbent upon us to educate people who may not have such a broader perspective. The second thing I'll mention is with respect to, oh my goodness, did I? I okay. You know what, Brian? Let's, sorry. Let's, no worries. I've forgotten the second point. So <laughs> <laughs> let's keep going. And then I, I'm sure I'll remember at some point. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, to the first point, it's, it's true, right? I think it's such yeah. a, I think our parents at the end of the day just want us to be happy. Yeah. And for them, the idea of happiness is stability. It's mm-hmm. having a job that pays really well because yeah. maybe perhaps for them, this was an unattainable goal at the time. It's like, how yeah. do I, how do I even have a family? And right. I'm pretty sure that the only thing they were thinking about at the time is if only if I came here younger, I can go to college, become a doctor and make money. And yeah. that will be my true sense of happiness. Of course, as we know now, it's not true at all, right? There's mm-hmm. so much happiness than just making money and just having almost yeah. like a mundane routine, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And thank you for, I, I mean, I, I agree with everything you just said. And I also now remember the second point I was going to make, which was, you know, you observe sometimes when you, I, I, I love food, which is why I keep going back to the restaurant example, but you know, let's say that you, uh, say you dropped out of law school because it wasn't for you. I mean, you read all the law books, you wrote all the outlines, you did all the exams, wrote all your papers, and you thought this is this is not for me. I'm passionate, say, about coffee. So I'm going to open up a really cool coffee shop. It'll great, be a great place for people to hang out. It'll have high quality coffee and food. When you go into these sorts of places, what you realize is you know, sometimes we can think, oh, you know, lawyers, doctors or whatever, that they're so vaunted. What they do is so challenging and the ability it requires is amazing. And the kind of education training requires, that's amazing. I I mean, that is all true, but for that coffee shop to run as it does, you observe how the employees talk to one another, how the managers will run the place. I mean, there is some serious rigor in having an enterprise like that take off from, from again, from scratch to become a great place for people to, to hang out and to, to get some sustenance. I, I mean, it's just, you watch for that kind of the rigor, the passion, the, the ability, the ambition, you know, you find that in so many different places. It doesn't just come in, you know, a, a set of three professions or, you know, whatever is expected of, of people if they're going to do well in life. So I, I would encourage those who are still, you know, in in that mindset to just have an open mind about what people are capable of. Because I, I think when you do listen and when you observe those things, you can see that talent comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Yeah, I really like that point of view too. And honestly, you're right. I think since I became an entrepreneur, I have respects for I have respect for all entrepreneurs, no matter what yeah. industry you're in, because it's hard. Even yeah. the most simple things is hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. No, it is. It is absolutely really, really difficult. I mean, it's it's one of those things where until you experience it, you don't quite know what it's like to have so much of yourself invested in a project. And um, it's one of those projects, incidentally, that could die at any time. I don't know any entrepreneur who's had a completely smooth ride. There's oh. always going to be instances where, you're thinking, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to be here next month. I don't know if we're going to be here next year. You just, I mean, there's a great deal of uncertainty that goes into it. So yes, all the respect out there for people who build things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that statement more. So I want to talk about you being a co-founder and CEO at Saga. 
Yeah. Right. And yeah. particular before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit more about like Web3 and metaverse. Yeah. That type of that type of topic because unfortunately when I attend these Web3 conferences around the world, I honestly don't see a lot of Asian representation there. Mm. And I also feel like it also falls within our culture as well. We're so risk averse. We don't quite know what that is yet. Like we're not yeah. gonna invest time, money into it. Of course, it's early adopters for every community. Yeah. But in particular, how would you explain the metaverse and web three to our listeners here on this podcast and might not know what that is? Absolutely. So let me let me step back for a second. I'll try to make this as interesting as possible. So we won't get too technical, but metaverse and web three are two different things. So Web3, I would say, in many ways, preceded Metaverse. Web3 is about decentralization of the internet and returning ownership of your digital life to you as the user of this technology. So what do I mean by that? So Web3 comes from the fact that there was a Web2. So what was Web2 all about? Web2 is the fan companies. It is Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, Microsoft. It is these tech giants who to the early stages of the internet and solved the problems, solved the technology problems of the internet, and then use the internet to solve social problems as well. And they've undeniably made all our lives better in, in many ways, worse in some ways, better in many ways. But in order to achieve that kind of scale, uh, they had to become quite large themselves. And so we've gotten to a point where it, it really is these large tech companies that are owning our digital lives. We don't own our data. Doesn't matter what they say in the terms of service or disclaimers, we don't own our data. And everything that you do in your online interactions belongs to the company that enabled that. What Web3 is about is no. When I do something online, it is mine. It is If I create something, it is mine to own. If I make statements, if I engage in any sort of transactional activity online, that belongs to me, including all the information associated with it. So what Web3 is all about is building the infrastructure that enables that to happen. So obviously, if I still have to go through a large company to get access to that technology, that large company is the gatekeeper. They're going to take my digital life. But in Web3, because we've completely decentralized the architecture of the internet, all that I create, all that I do online, it still belongs to me. So it's about ownership and decentralization and taking control of your digital life. That's what Web3 is fundamentally about. You hear a lot about tokens and staking and coins and, and all this stuff that really only, only those of us who are building in this space should concern ourselves with. In terms of how you use Web3, it is about owning your digital life. So that's, that's what Web3 is about. What is Metaverse about? Metaverse is an acknowledgement of the fact that more and more, especially post-pandemic, we are living more of our lives online. And so there is the, the real us. And Brian, I do hope to meet you in person before long. But there is also the digital representation of us, even this podcast here. I mean, I'm seeing you on camera. You're seeing me on camera. This is a virtual representation of who we are. Metaverse, oftentimes it's it's not even this lifelike. It's, you know, cartoons and avatars, but it's a recognition that so much of our lives now is done online. And not just in terms of creative things or entertainment. It's not just gaming. It's not just, you know, cool NFTs or artwork that we like. It can also be, you know, my office interactions. If I'm going to be working remotely for a long time, more and more the metaverse is being defined to include those remote office interactions. So it's an acknowledgement that there is a virtual world. And that virtual world requires much of the same tooling as the real world. And so that's that's what Web3 and Metaverse is all about. So before I keep going, let me know if that made sense. And if there are any questions that immediately come out of that. No, that absolutely makes sense to me, right? And I really like the explanation of that. I think, honestly, it's better than most Web3 and Metaverse conferences that I've been to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, I... I mean, I I am not, I mean, I'm not a builder of blockchains myself. I'm not a programmer. And so when I first got fascinated with this space, I had to understand it for myself in real terms. Like what is the value exactly that this technology is offering to the world over and above what can be done with current systems. So yeah, over, over time, that's how I've come to understand it and share with people. Yeah. I mean, I can't help but feel like this is the future. 
right? Yeah. And like all things, I feel like adoption is always slow at first, but eventually yeah. it'll speed up like crazy. I don't know if I, I forgot, I can't quote this for sure, but I think I saw a graph of like adoption for the internet. It took oh, much longer than it is today. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Mobile devices, technology, and I think over time, like we're going to see a lot more adoption in mainstream media as time goes on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think so too. I think so too. I mean, we, we are incredibly raw right now for anyone who has used a crypto product. First of all, I apologize because the user experience of most crypto projects is, is not wonderful. And that's because we, we are still very, very, very early. And I, I think people are a little puzzled when they, they use a wallet, for instance, a wallet is how you hold your tokens in web three. They're, they're a little puzzled by that experience where they think, okay, this is supposed to be an improvement over and above traditional financial services like Bank of America, Citigroup, or wherever you bank. This is supposed to be an improvement, and yet I can figure out how to withdraw money from my Bank of America account. I cannot figure out how to use a Web3 crypto wallet. So how is this an improvement? So there's so much work that we as an industry have to do. But in terms of the overall vision, it is you know what I just shared. It, it is to take that ownership back. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree with that for sure. Now let's talk about Saga. Yeah. Right. Tell us about Saga. When did you found the company? What was the mission of Saga? And what have you guys been able to accomplish so far? Yeah. So Saga is, well, I'll, I'll tell you how Saga started life. So let's, let's go to, okay, let's, let's step back, you know, to, to the hundred thousand foot level. So Web3, because it's so early, it, it is a world of worlds right now. So it is, put it this way, right now, when we use the internet, we don't think about all the networking and infrastructure that goes into it because it's just, it's been hidden from all of us. The technology is so mature that we don't have to think about it as users. However, in Web3, because it's so early and the production of the technology is centered around a very, very small population of people, uh, you have to build something from ground up, which means a lot more of the infrastructure shows. In fact, the infrastructure is front and center in Web3. And how does that manifest itself? Web3 is organized into ecosystems. Those ecosystems correspond to blockchains. Blockchain is the infrastructure that underlies Web3. So there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, there's Solana, and then there's the ecosystem that we come from, which is Cosmos. And the Cosmos thesis all along was um, everyone deserves their own space. So when you build an application on the Ethereum network or the Solana network, for instance, you're building on somebody else's space. This blockchain is being maintained by the Ethereum Foundation, Solana Labs, the greater community. It's not your space. It's, it's, it doesn't belong to you. And what Cosmos said was, we think people are going to get onto blockchain infrastructure, but they're ultimately going to want what we call sovereignty. So the ability to determine what goes into your space, the cost of using your space. Right now, if you build on a larger chain, your costs are affected by traffic that is being produced by other applications that have nothing to do with you. If anything were to go wrong on your application, you cannot fix it. On Cosmos, you can. So Cosmos was all about, okay, let's give everyone the ability to build their own chains and then have these chains speak to one another. That's where the connectivity comes in. So how did Saga come about? From the heart of the Cosmos ecosystem, there's a core group of people who have been working in it ever since its inception. And they said, we have the best technology. It is the most secure. We have thought through all the major problems around scaling, communication between blockchains, et cetera. However, it is very difficult to build a chain unless you are an experienced developer, unless you have resources. So how do we democratize that? How do we make that a lot easier? And that is the mission of Saga, is to get people onto their own dedicated block space automatically. For us, the mission is to be the AWS of Web3. So what that means is if you are a developer in the space, you can take your application, this is your baby, your project, you can automatically get it onto your own chain. So you have your own dedicated infrastructure from the beginning. This infrastructure is able to talk to all the other chains and that's that's where the interoperability comes in. But that that's the mission, core mission of Saga. Now, I, I do think it's important to talk about, you know, how did we choose the name? How does the mission inform what we do as a project? 
So we did work with a wonderful agency on this. I am going to give a shout out to them because they are fantastic. The name is GladEye. They're out of New Zealand. Fabulous. I recommend them to anyone. But but they encouraged us to think about, you know, if if Saga is a project, yes, but if it were a person, how would you describe it? If you had to tell a story about this person, what would that story sound like? So I got back to, to first principles here. We talked a lot about entrepreneurship so far and how much respect we have for entrepreneurs. Every developer in the Web3 space is an entrepreneur. Almost by definition, you are either working on an early project or you have founded that early project. And so the narrative started to solidify as developers are heroes. They are. They are heroes. They embark on heroic journeys to build their projects. And so out of that came the name Saga. And it still informs what we do as a project. The developer is the star at Saga. You know, people say customers king. Here, the developer is the star. All the technology decisions we make are geared towards making developers' lives easier. On the business side, all the support that we give is structured around promoting developers, fostering their projects, and ultimately getting them launched and used in the Web3 ecosystem. So that's what Saga does. It's the origin story. We're, yeah, we're we're going at it. We're going at it. It's busy. It's very busy right now. We came out of stealth late March. We came out of stealth in late March and announced our, our seed raise mid-May. And that was already at a valuation of 130 million before we had any product. We just had a team and an idea. Since May, we've just been heads down building as well as getting people onboarded onto our ecosystem. Um, so we're, we're going to be launching what we call Alphanet, which is the earliest version of our network in, in a couple of weeks time. So coming up very, very soon. And we have about 55 of these projects in our ecosystem so far, which is, I, I think in terms of how Web3 projects go, it's, it's quite a lot, but we've been determined from the beginning, let's build something that can really make a difference in this space and ultimately get us closer to what Web3 is all about. I, I would hope that once Saga has really, you know, taken a swung at the ball, that taken a, what did I just say there? Taking a swing at the ball. Yeah. Yeah, no worries. Uh, yeah. I, I would really hope that once we're, once we're truly hitting our stride in this effort, that everything I, I just described as Web3 becomes obvious. You know, it's no longer necessary to talk about the tech. It's just obvious that this is what the space is all about. I want to first say that I'm very impressed with what you're building. And as a former developer, I think that this is amazing, right? Yeah. Honestly, you're solving a crucial problem because the biggest thing with among my developer friends in the crypto space is always like, how yeah. should I build this? Where should I build this? Why are gas fees so expensive? <laughs> All these yeah, little yeah, yeah. nuances, right? Yeah. 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 No, that's that's exactly right. And I'm sure, I'm sure for your friends, it's it's a sort of thing where you I, I mean, I think it'll be the case for a long time that in order to work in Web3, you have to be truly passionate about what you're doing because there are so many things to overcome that you don't have to overcome in Web2. So you just, you mentioned gas fees right now, Brian. So a gas fee is is the fee for using that particular chain. That's That's what it refers to. So the fact that gas fees are now visible is kind of the equivalent of you opening up your Uber app, for instance. And in addition to the fee for the ride and the tip for your driver, maybe some, maybe there's a line item for government fees in there. Um, there's also a line item for AWS. I mean, that's that's sort of the equivalent of what gas fees are. And so, of course, in, in Web 2, in sort of mainstream internet, we don't accept that. As a user, we're not used to seeing that kind of cost. Of course, the cost is there. Uh, it's factored into the company's pricing, but it's not a line item that we are responsible for. And I think the same should be true in Web 3. It speaks to how early and raw things are that it's currently not true but that is something that we're doing at saga is none of our gas fees are ever visible to the end user we will settle that with the developers directly and then again the developers are entrepreneurs are builders in their own right they can decide their own business models so they can offer games nfts for free and generate revenue in other ways or they can use our gas token it doesn't matter for us it's all about that user experience i love it i love it i mean this is the first time where i actually Felt like I'm talking to a founder in this space that's actually pushing the space forward. Right? Yeah. Oh my I think, goodness. I think for the longest time, people don't quite think about what it's built on. They keep thinking about the vision that they have. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And it comes with everything we do too. We don't take a step back and look at things holistically. We don't realize how broken the process really is. Yes. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, oh my goodness, like for, for those of us who, who are in the space and just to, to open the doors a little bit for people who are peeking in, sometimes wallets are are not just digital. They're also in the form of hardware. And there's, there's this company called Ledger that makes a really great wallet for, for offline storage. So there's a hardware wallet. And in order to do transactions on this, literally, it's like a, a 1970s, 1980s Nintendo game. It's like, you got to push these two buttons at the same time. Then you got to push these like 10 times. And that it, it just, it looks like an Atari game, but not fun. And I, I think so many people in this space have gotten used to that kind of user experience. They're like, you know, this, it's almost a badge of honor that you have to go through all this hassle in order to, to be a crypto user. But I think the point of it is if you really believe in the mission of Web3, by definition, it cannot only apply to a small group of people. You're looking to I, this, this phrase is overused, but you're looking to change the world. You're looking to change how we interact with digital technology. And that's, I mean, that's pretty much everyone nowadays. Over 5 billion people are wired one way or another. And mm -hmm. we're looking to reach them, not just a small group of enthusiasts. Yeah, I love that. I love that statement a lot. I don't know why when you told me about the ledger thing, it yeah. took me back to like CS 101. Yes. <laughs> Where it's like you're like inputting little holes into the programming sheet to tell the computer what to do, right? I feel like we're in that stage right now of yeah, the, we are the metaverse, the crypto world. But yeah, you don't quite know. I, I think like I think it's awesome to hear this perspective too because I think that in any industry you could always apply what can we do better. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How can we see things differently? How do we look outside the box? I know those terms are thrown around a lot as well. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you need to do that. <laughs> you know, otherwise you don't know what you're working on. You don't know what you're working on. And it's it's one of those things where no, it's it's funny because there's disruption and then there's the disrupting the disruption and then so on and so forth. And I I think that you know, for new technology to be birthed, you have several cycles of that before people start to get mainstream adoption. And honestly, sometimes you you don't quite know when it's gonna hit. I mean, for me, the magical moment in in web two was honestly it it was this it's funny because it's not even related to to internet usage per se but for me it was the swipe the swipe was what did it oh because, because it was tinder. so <laughs> uh, sorry like tinder uber tinder, tinder uber or even the, the very first iphone if you wanted to move to another page you swiped up it, it just it was the swipe and even babies can do it I mean, is that level of human intuition that when we want to, you know, navigate somewhere on a static page, we just swipe and there will come a moment in web three that is equivalent to the swipe. We haven't arrived at it yet, but it's, it's that sort of thing where it's exciting because not only are you moving the technology forward, of course, and you're opening up a new world of use cases. But I think the fact that the swipe was so revolutionary for, for technology, it taught us a lot about how humans are and you know what is what does it mean to well what is it what does it mean to be human what does it mean that we respond to these things what does it mean that in order to make progress we have to invent things like this I mean this whole exercise is as much about creating new things as it is about learning who we are as people yeah especially on that topic too I do want to take this conversation back to Rebecca herself okay right and <laughs> I understand throughout this entire podcast that you're such a driven person. You're extremely focused. Yeah. You you have very, very clear goals, which is absolutely necessary to achieve what you're trying to do. I'm kind of curious, you know, as you know, like we're all human beings here. Mm -hmm. How do you keep yourself motivated from day to day? It seems like when I talk to you during this podcast, you don't have any off days, but you know, as humans, we do have off days and we're human beings. We feel everything. Yeah. Right? Oh, yes. And I want to hear oh, that, yeah. pers that perspective too, because I feel like among my super overachieving friends, the most common comment that we always get is you're kind of robotic. You're kind of like so like hardcore. <laughs> right? And I want to dive into the human part, Rebecca, and hear about like yeah. some of the internal struggles that you go through, some of your self-doubts yeah. that you go through, because those are all things that are part of 
being human, the part of being a founder, part of everything, right? Yeah. I don't want to hear that side of you. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, so I, I will say that I've pretty much always been a very driven person for as long as I can remember. And I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a, a story from childhood that's kind of illustrative of this. So, you know, as I was growing up, I, I was at home with my mom a lot and, you know, in the afternoon she would give me like, you know, half an hour of TV or something like that, you know, in between reading and all these activities, you get half an hour of TV. So I would watch things like Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, Sesame Street, you know, the classics of childhood. And very soon, you know, Tiger Mom, she she was like, you know, I don't think this is educational enough for you. So my mother's really into ballet. And she had these tapes at the time, these videotapes of ballets, the classics, like Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, et cetera. And, and so she's like, this is what you're going to watch when it's your, your TV time. So she would pop this tape in. And at first I would sit there and watch, I would sit there and watch Swan Lake and without any prompting, like it only took a short while for me to get up, move the living room furniture out of the way and start dancing along. And that turned into a lifelong love of ballet. But it, it was that desire to like get into the action and become a part of something that I really loved that, that I, I guess, you know, it was, it was that exercise of watching ballet that, that really made me discover that, but that, that instinct of wanting to get involved in things, um, wanting to really do well at something that I loved that has stayed with me my whole life. But Brian, you're asking about, okay, how do you keep that going when you have an off day? There are bad days. I mean, for anyone watching out there, it is absolutely true. There are bad days when just it, you're like, yeah, as soon as you wake up in the morning, you know, this is one of those days where, you know, I like burn the coffee. I don't know how you burn coffee, but you've burnt the coffee and a customer emails you and says, you know, I don't know if now is the right time for us to be working together, or you are, you're asking your colleague to help out with something. And it ends up being a serious miscommunication. You have those days, you have those moments. And particularly in a startup environment, it's really, really easy to get very unhappy, honestly, and upset during those moments, because again, you're so invested in this project. There, there isn't some like partner or, you know, C-suite person or managing director who's going to protect you. There is no institution that is a buffer between you and the rest of the market. It's just you. And I think how well this company does reflects personally on you. You do take it personally. If the company doesn't do well, it's because you tried everything and you failed. And so it's the temptation is to just feel all these disappointments that much more acutely. So how do I sort of quote unquote, get over this and keep going? So I think the most important thing for me, and I think everyone has different ways of dealing with it, but the most important thing for me is to keep moving. And actually it, this kind of relates to dance. So in ballet, I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult art form. If you fall or if you make a mistake, the motto ever since I was little was smile and move. Like don't, don't halt on stage, just smile and keep moving. And I feel like that applies to how I conduct my day-to-day -day now. If something happens, smile and keep moving in the sense that like, look for the next thing. If one customer says, okay, you know, I, I just don't think right now is the right time. Why is that? Is this an opportunity to have a conversation to perhaps change the relationship? Or if there truly is nothing that can be done at this moment, is there another customer we can focus our resources on? Should we start thinking about even, you know, a, a wider scope of possibility that's going to change our go-to-market? But you know, don't, don't sit there in your unhappiness. Keep moving. Look for possibilities. Acknowledge the fact that, yeah, this is, this is a crappy moment, but keep moving. Look for other possibilities, kind of in the way that, you know, a cat like falls off a building. They find a way to like rotate in the air and land on their feet. Um, I, I feel like as an entrepreneur or as any sort of driven professional, you have to do that on a regular basis. So that's how I cope with it is keep thinking of other possibilities. Don't fixate on the fact that there was a disappointment. Just keep, keep going, keep thinking. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that statement more. And one thing I want to add is that as an entrepreneur or a driven professional, there's a lot more bad days and good days. 
Yes. You know, you can't, I would say yeah. during the week, it's probably five bad days and like one good day you know, and one lazy day, hopefully. You know? No, it's, it's true. It's true. And, and sometimes you also, you, you do feel it physically. I will say, you know, you feel it physically. I, I would say like when I was practicing law, as people know, like big law, as we call it, so corporate law is intense, many, many long hours, same with investment banking, same with consulting, and definitely the practice of medicine as well. I mean, it's just, it's a lot of long hours that are uncontrollable by you. This is what your client or your patient demands of you. Um, I will say I will, I was never close to burnout when I was at a law firm, even though I worked long, long hours, because again, ultimately there wasn't that emotional part of it. It was always somebody else's problem that I was working on. It was my client's problem. Or if something off happened in the deal, there's this institution of the firm that is ultimately protecting me from any like massive consequences. But when you are an entrepreneur, it's it's you and your team. That's it. It's you and your team. And so, yeah, it, it is important to remember that you have to protect against feeling sort of the physical manifestation of bad days or disappointments or just like the volume of work that you have to do. Burnout is real. And I, it's, it's not something that, oh, you know, it's just this generation that calls out tiredness and burnout, you know, previous generations just toughed through it. No, 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 no. It, it is real. Burnout is very real. And Honestly, if you're looking to just make sure that your performance is optimal at any given time, it's it's good to protect yourself from that. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with that statement a lot more, right? I Yeah, I mean, the way you deal with everything is pretty much how I deal with everything. There is I'm the type of person that has whiteboards all over my house, I have yeah. you know, so I make sure that every morning I wake up to a smile. Yeah. And I, there's a cup phone cover on my phone that says move, keep moving forward. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that every problem has a solution, but you can't dwell on every problem. Yeah. So much like acknowledge it, learn from it, don't let it yeah. repeat itself, but like you have to keep moving on because at the end of the day like your organization feeds off of you. Mm-hmm. Your energy, your how you deal with people. It's crazy how that happens, right? Because yeah. like yeah. your mental maturity is how your executive team deals with its problems. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's when you ascend to a leadership position for the first time, whether it's in a startup or even in a larger organization, I think that's when you very quickly have to realize, okay, I'm no longer in the mode where I focus on my part and I make sure that my part is done well and then the rest doesn't really matter. When you ascend to that leadership position, you realize that almost everything you do is noticed. And so exactly like you said, Brian, the energy that you give off, even the way that you express yourself, people within your organization are going to start mimicking that a little bit. And it's just a very natural part of the life of organizations. I mean, for if we had people that we reported to, I'm sure it would be the same way. Uh, but it, it's true. It is an incredible amount of responsibility. And I, I think that's that's something that I, I try to remember every day is no matter what happens, it is an incredible position of responsibility that I have. And so even if my instinct is to I don't know, just kind of sit there for a bit and pout, it's just it's not that's not going to fly because if I do that, other people will do it. And that's on me if I adversely affect them. So I mean, that's that's a great thing to remember. Yeah, it's <laughs> just a funny, quick, funny story. So I have yeah. a bad habit where th- when things go wrong, I sigh. Oh. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like oh. <laughs> and, and then, everyone's like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, and then I realized like my team, my team of seven sort of picked up my size. They're like, they oh. started sighing too. Like, oh, crap. Oh, no. I, didn't, I didn't watch what I do. <laughs> you know? It's true. No, it's true. It's, it's so true. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. And, and there are definitely times when I, I, I've caught myself doing this where I, I know the full context of a situation because I've been directly dealing with it. And then something, something bad happens in the situation. The team sees a small slice of it, but then they see my reaction and then they recognize, oh, maybe it's like a lot worse than we thought. And then at that moment, I catch myself. Like I shouldn't, I shouldn't have allowed that to come out, but yeah, I, I hear you. I yeah. hear you. There's a lot that goes into this. But at, at the end of the day, Rebecca, we're all human, right? All we human. all process things separately. All human. Yeah. yeah. So I know we're right up against the end of the hour for our podcast. Mm-hmm. And I just want to end the podcast with a fun question. Rebecca, what do you do for fun in your free time? 
What do I do for fun? What do I do for fun? So I still dance. I still dance ballet. I I really love to cook and I really love to cook for people in particular. And so pandemic was a bit of a bummer because people couldn't come over. But now that we've opened up, I, I love having friends over for dinner parties, brunches. It's just, it's it's really great to, to share you know, a few hours together over a meal. What else do I like to do? So I, I do try very hard to keep up with what is happening on the political scene, even when it's not an election year. I mean, this is an election year. Midterms are coming up. It's very important. But I, I will try to keep up with with the pulse, not just what's happening in D.C., but local politics as well, because it, it is incredibly important. And it is one of, you know, not to end on a serious note, but it is one of my big goals outside of what I do in business, outside of, you know, any other creative endeavor I have. It is to increase the presence of the Asian American community in this country. I mean, we are the fastest growing population in America. And the truth of the matter is we matter because we vote. So getting the vote out, increasing political consciousness, really um, putting civic responsibility, but also just sort of the, the benefits of being part of the civic life of a country front and center in the minds of the Asian American community is, is something that I feel really passionately about. So it, it is something that I spend a lot of my spare time doing. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a cause that I think a lot about. Awesome. I mean, that's an amazing cause, right? And it's awesome to have people like yourself that continuously think about it and support it because even with that, I mean, I don't want to dive deep into that, but I feel like even with the Asian community in America, we're still at the very early stages, Yeah. right? We're almost yeah. like the Wild West point, similar to how crypto is. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean it, it kind of it kind of has a, a very similar challenge in the sense that so crypto is I mean so much of the difficulty around crypto emerges from the fact that it is these very different ecosystems as opposed to a unified internet. And I think for Asian Americans, you know, we're still at the point where we are Chinese American, we are Vietnamese American, we're Indian American. I mean, it's a very, very broad tent. And I, I do think that there is a path to unify our voices, acknowledge the diversity and the different perspectives, but really just to unify us as a force. We are very, very early in that exercise. But I think that there, there is a will to get there. And ultimately, we'll, we'll, we'll all be better off. I, I think the fabric of our society will be better off once we hit that moment. But you're right. It's we're early. We're early. Definitely. So Rebecca, how can our listeners find out more about you and Saga? Yeah. So Saga's website is very simply saga.xyz. And our our Twitter handle is the same, Saga XYZ. I think it's a double underscore after that. For me personally, so I tweet at Becca Liao. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I do have a website, RebeccaLiao.com. And yeah, I, those are those are the normal channels. But I always look forward to hearing from people. I do respond to every query that I get, even if it's somewhat delayed and somewhat short. I do try to respond to everyone because they made the effort to reach out. So I look forward to hearing from everyone. And of course, uh, if you'd like to know more about Saga, once again, saga.xyz. Of course, we'll include the, all that in our show notes. But Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. This was an amazing chat. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.